Okay, so a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim are sitting in a bar. We're in the Convivencia, the great and idealized era of coexistence, cooperation, and mutual curiosity between Jews, Christians, and Muslims in Spain, when the highly educated members of each faith could sit with their drinks, soaking up each other's knowledge, wisdom, and experience. So we're in this bar in Andalusia, in southern Spain, in the late 1000s, the 11th century, at a time when Andalusia was the great cosmopolitan and intellectual capital of the world. Jews were having a golden age, along with Spain itself, as the three faiths enjoyed relative peace and stability, free to pursue new heights of intellectual achievement together. And in the case of the Jews, to rise to some of the highest levels of social life, including positions at the royal court. Of course, it wasn't quite this tranquil, tolerant, or easy. Historians argue a great deal about just how coexistent was this great convivencia, just how golden was this golden age really. The position of the Jews in between the Christians and Muslims tussling over territory turned out to be a very precarious and tragic balance indeed. This unraveling of the convivencia, this position of peril and fragility, is represented by the life and works of today's Jewish thinker, perhaps the greatest Jewish poet who ever lived, Judah Halevi. Although we have a great many of his written works, his personal life remains a bit obscure. He was probably born in the 1070s, either in Tudela or Toledo, Spain. His was a life of the wandering Jew. He bounced around Spain looking for safe harbor. A man of the West, he eventually made his way east on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land of the Crusader era. At which point, we lose sight of him, his last days as enigmatic to us as his first. Along the way, he wrote one of the greatest defenses of Judaism ever put to paper, and left us beautiful poetry expressing the full range of his life, emotions, and deep connection to his Jewish faith. Judah Halevi, that's who we're talking about today. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome to the 135th episode of Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So let's set the scene here. The great golden age of Jewish life in Spain was beginning to end just as Judah Halevi was born. Now it wasn't quite so great or so golden as it gets made out to be, but rather somewhere in the middle. The Muslims took over southern Spain, Andalusia, back in the 700s. They were generally tolerant of the Jews in their midst, at least more so than Jews in other parts of Christian Europe, such as Catholic Spain. Jews could, and did, flourish under Muslim rule, culturally, economically, and intellectually. Jewish communities could largely govern themselves and had relative freedom of worship. Although they were officially deemed second-class citizens and did not have the same rights and privileges as Muslims, most restrictions were designed towards social and symbolic segregation. Outright persecution was relatively rare. Jews often lived much as their Muslim neighbors, even speaking Arabic. The advantage of being a smaller minority in between two big competing powers, the Muslims in southern Spain and the Christians in the north, was that Jews could often either escape notice or use their status to rise unencumbered, being largely left alone afforded a golden age in Jewish literature and learning. But the Iberian Peninsula was also awash in wars of conquest as Christian Spain sought to take back Muslim territory through the Reconquista. 
The disadvantage of the Jews was being stuck between two warring parties, who often found in the Jews a convenient scapegoat for their own problems. In the year 1066, in Granada, a Muslim city in southern Spain, a massacre took place against the Jewish population of the town. The instigation seems to have been the scheming of the Jewish leader of the community, who was also the close advisor to the king, a man named Joseph ibn Nagrella. When a plot instigated by Joseph to overthrow Granada's ruler failed, the Muslim population stormed the palace where he was hiding, crucified him, and then fell on the rest of the Jews in the city. It's unknown how many were killed, perhaps somewhere between 1 and 4,000. Although such violence was rare, it marked a watershed moment of Jewish vulnerability and was not forgotten. From then on, it was clear that Jewish toleration was fragile, dependent on the whims of leaders and the careful balance of power between Christians and Muslims. Into this world, Judah Halevi was born a few years later, and it made for something of a melancholic life of wandering. He was born in Christian Spain, either in Toledo, near Madrid, or further north in Tudela. As a teenager, he moved to Muslim Granada, still fresh from the memory of the massacre, but still a place where an aspiring cosmopolitan like Halevi would want to be. There would be far more opportunities in the vibrant Muslim South than in the comparatively staid another Christian North. In Andalusia, he came under the mentorship of one of Spain's great Jewish philosophers at the time. Moses ibn Ezra, from a wealthy and prominent family. And there, Judah Halevi began developing a dual life, becoming both a highly educated and respected physician and a famed writer and poet. Yet within a few years, once again, Spain's political upheavals forced a life change. A new Muslim dynasty came to power in Andalusia, driving ibn Ezra and his family north to Christian Toledo. It seems that Judah Halevi was not far behind, and for the next 20 years would settle uncomfortably and reluctantly there, pining always for what he remembered as the sweet years down south. He married and had at least one daughter. Some scholars speculate that he had two other children. One of his most powerful poems expresses the grief of a father losing his teenage daughter, which may well have been his own. When a family conflict forced Moses ibn Ezra to leave Toledo, Halevi lamented the loss of his friend and mentor in a great poem. Quote, The source of all wisdom, his words were pure nuggets of gold. Our friendship is old. It goes back to when no one harnessed or rode. The wagons of wanderings rode, and my soul was unpractised at parting, and our days were unfractured and whole. End quote. I use a translation here from the great scholar Hillel Harkin who noted that the poem is a lament for the transiency of both their lives. The wagons of Wanderings Road expressing both Halevi's sense of loss of his mentor and also his own wistful remembrance of a better life in Andalusia, where he longed to return. It was also during this time in Toledo that Halevi began considering his perspective on Judaism and the role that his faith was playing in the tumult of conflict between the Muslims and Christians. It was to be his most impactful work, and led him on the journey towards his own enigmatic destiny. Although this era in the early 1100s saw a flourishing of Jewish scholarship and achievement, it was also a difficult time. 
Jews were subject to the whims of local rulers and the rages of the mob, their status could turn on a dime towards persecution and oppression. That was a bit less true in areas under Islamic control, such as southern Spain and North Africa, but it was definitely true throughout Christian Europe. It was just in the last few years that the Pope in Rome launched the Crusades to take back the Holy Land from the Muslims. The Mediterranean was abuzz with Christian triumphalism. And it wasn't just the Jews themselves who came under attack, but Judaism itself. Both Christianity and Islam considered themselves as having superseded Judaism. Anyone still stubbornly clinging to that outdated faith must have something wrong with them. Jews were willfully blind to the new truths and so deserved their scorned status. And this was a time when philosophy was ascendant, with its emphasis on using reason and logic to examine the nature of things. The rational philosophers found much that seemed irrational in the Jewish texts, the miraculous wonders of creation and prophecy. Faith, in this view, cannot be proof of truth. The Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy writes that the Jews' quote, detractors had the prestige of power, numbers, worldly success, and specialized new knowledge to support their claims, while the Jews had only their history, traditions, and what remained of their faith to fall back on, end quote. It's a bit of an unfair assessment, but that's kind of how it was looked. Judah Halevi was educated in philosophy, and as a physician, well appreciated the importance of observable phenomenon and rational thinking. And yet he also believed in the immutable truths of Judaism that don't require logic and reason, but faith, acceptance, and devotion. God, the land of Israel, the belonging to the chosen people, these were elements that Halevi knew to be the essence of Judaism, and the hardest to pass muster in a society focused on the ideals of philosophy. So Halevi set out to explain it all. To explain Judaism, to answer every question a Jew or non-Jew could have, to defend the religion and the people that had become indefensible. He called his work, The Book of Refutation and Proof on Behalf of the Despised Religion, which incredibly was almost the title chosen for this podcast. But too many words for proper search engine optimization. And anyway, the title also proved a bit too unwieldy even back then, and so Halevi's book simply became known as the Kuzari. It was a rousing defense of Judaism in the face of philosophy, Christianity, and Islam against the backdrop of the Reconquista in Spain and the Crusades in Europe. And its premise was the decision by a king who had lived several centuries earlier. In order to make the Kuzari accessible to a wide audience, Judah Halevi used a historical device that would have been familiar to many people. A few hundred years back from Halevi's time, beginning in the 700s, a semi-nomadic people called the Khazars ruled the land between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, roughly where Kazakhstan, Russia, Ukraine, and Crimea meet today. And it appears that sometime in the 700s, 800s, or early 900s, the Khazar royalty and the social elite converted to Judaism. They established what may have amounted to a mini-Jewish kingdom smack in the middle of some of the major Silk Road trade routes in the Middle Ages. Now, we have a lot of textual evidence suggesting this, but it's a hotly debated topic amongst historians today as to what extent Khazar society adopted Judaism, if it even did at all. Still, in Judah Halevi's day, 
which was within a century or two of this happening, it was accepted as a recent fact of history, so everyone knew about it. So what Halevi did was write the Kuzari as an extended dialogue between the Khazar king and a rabbi, in which the king interrogates the rabbi why he should convert to Judaism as opposed to Christianity or Islam. Halevi uses the king to ask every question under the sun about Judaism, and he uses this rabbi to answer them. Halevi's Kuzari was intended as a full-throated defense of Judaism and the uniqueness of the Jewish people. The historian Adam Kirsch writes that, quote, The Kuzari, though formulated as a defense of Judaism against its enemies, was written for a Jewish audience, and it is meant to assuage Jewish fears and concerns, end quote. The premise here is that the king of the Khazars has a dream one night, in which an angel tells him that his practice of the Khazar religion is not enough. That in the angel's words, the king's way of thinking is pleasing to the creator, but not his way of acting. That is, just having the right theological thoughts is not enough. You must also back them up with deeds. The king decides to find out, first consulting with Christian and then Muslim theologians, but he's left unsatisfied. Halevi cleverly reveals to the king that Christianity and Islam are but imperfect extensions of what Judaism has already laid out. The king reluctantly turns to a rabbi then. Quote, I see myself compelled to ask the Jews, for I see that they constitute themselves the evidence for the divine law on earth. End quote. This message would not have been lost on the Kuzari's readers. Whatever Christianity and Islam offered, they were built on the foundation of Judaism which could only be considered the original revelation. Rather than grounding Judaism in theological principles, Judah Halevi's rabbi explains to the Khazar king that Judaism is a religion based on history, and that is how Jews are understanding God. Not as an abstract creator being, but as an entity deeply involved in the history of the Jewish people, from the covenant with the forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the exodus from Egypt, to giving the law at Mount Sinai, transmitted through Moses and the prophets. After all, as the historian Adam Kirsch points out, God doesn't identify himself as the creator of the world, but instead as the God who has led you out of the land of Egypt. Now, the king's a bit troubled by this, because the rabbi is speaking of miracles that the king hasn't seen with his own eyes. And because miracles can't be verified and are outside the realm of philosophical rationality, the king is skeptical about adopting them as the truth. But Halevi has an ace up his sleeve here. Actually, these miracles are verified, he insists. The Hebrew Bible records that 600,000 Israelites were present through the exodus from Egypt and also at Mount Sinai. Irrefutable proof, says Halevi's rabbi, that these events occurred. For how could 600,000 witnesses have been wrong? In other words, the truth of Judaism is grounded in an actual historical experience, one directly witnessed by the ancestors of the current Jewish people. The king cannot help but concede on this point. And if this part is true, the king must acknowledge that the rest of the Hebrew Bible must also be true, further cementing the rabbi's case. Huge point for Team Judaism. 
And yet, the king is confused. If this is true, then how is it that the Jews are so despised? How is it that the people who hold the highest level of truth are yet rendered so low? Halevi's rabbi admits that the king has touched on our weak spot, he says. But here's the thing. The suffering of the Jews comes from God, not from natural forces. That the Jews suffer more is a sign that divine is directly invested in their affairs. And therefore, God can relieve the Jews' suffering. That's the reason Jews don't convert to Christianity or Islam, although it would make their lives so much easier. The rabbi tells the king, quote, If we bear our exile and degradation for God's sake, we shall be the pride of the generation which comes with the Messiah. End quote. But here's the catch as it concerns the king. To get in with that good stuff, the Jews don't just accept any old convert who adopts the theoretical aspects of Judaism. The Jews, says Judah Halevi, quote, demand actual self-sacrifice, purity, knowledge, circumcision, and numerous religious ceremonies. The convert must adopt our mode of life entirely, end quote. You may think that a king would be put off by this list of demands, but this is exactly what the king of the Khazars is looking for. Remember, the angel in his dream told him he must act in ways that please God, not just agree with abstract ideas. So the king is sold. Judaism, it is. Late one night, the king arrives in a cave where the Jews are celebrating Shabbat, gets circumcised, and returns to his kingdom a committed Jew. Such is the power of faith and the eternal truth of religion over that of the purely secular logic of philosophy, of the commitment that comes with the action of observing and practicing the obligatory laws given by God, rather than just philosophizing over ideas and concepts. Such things, insists Halevi, define a Jew, the illustrious people that the king of the Khazars is now privileged to join. It was a heartfelt, intellectually rigorous, and uplifting message aimed for the beleaguered Jews of the early 1100s. After this monumental defense of Judaism, the Kuzari, at the age of 60, Judah Halevi was in low spirits. His endless wanderings around Spain had done much to separate him from a sense of rootedness and community. He nurtured a budding ambition, to make Aliyah, that is to move to the land of Israel, sacred homeland of the Jewish people. In his most famous poem, Halevi wrote, quote, My heart is in the east, but the rest of me far in the west. How can I savor this life, even taste what I eat? How in the bonds of the moor, Zion, chained to the cross, can I do what I vowed to and must? Gladly I'd leave all the best of Grand Spain for one glimpse of the ruined shrine's dust. End quote. Zion, indeed, was chained to the cross, the Christian cross. In the year 1099, the Holy Land had been brutally captured by the Crusaders, Jerusalem's Muslim and Jewish inhabitants massacred as a Christian kingdom was established there for the first time in centuries. This was a particularly perilous time for any traveler to the Holy Land, let alone an elderly Jewish pilgrim. But Halevi was committed to leave Spain for one glimpse of the ruins of the Temple Mount. And so we did, 
In September of 1140, Halevi arrived in Egypt. Thanks to the treasure trove of documents preserved in what became known as the Cairo Geniza, we actually have letters to, from, and about Judah Halevi's time in Egypt. His reputation preceded him, and to his surprise, he arrived with much fanfare. He was wined and dined and celebrated in Alexandria and Egypt, and after many months there, he surely must have felt the pull of what would have been a very cushy retirement. But his soul was drawn further east. On May 14th, 1141, Judah Halevi's admirers stood on the pier in Alexandria and waved goodbye to their poet-philosopher. As his ship took up the winds to the horizon, we too lose sight of him. What came next were rumors. We can be fairly certain that he made it to the Holy Land. What we cannot say is how long he survived there. There's a reference to a gravesite for him within months of his arrival. Hundreds of years later, an Italian Jew would claim that Halevi was killed by an Arab man on horseback as the sage stood at the gates of Jerusalem. This account, although almost certainly apocryphal, became the accepted legend. More likely, of course, is that a man of his age had been too burdened by the hard pilgrimage and fell ill. Or perhaps, having achieved what he considered his ultimate destiny, having demonstrated what he believed to be his ultimate devotion, his life was fulfilled in the sight of God. He had arrived in the Holy Land. There was nothing else left to be done. More than 800 years before Zionism, Judah Halevi's solitary pilgrimage inspired and exemplified the Jewish longing for the Holy Land. The pull of Jerusalem, the sense of connection to the ancestral homeland that the vast majority of Jews in the Middle Ages would never see, only direct their prayers to. That a writer of such flowing poetry enigmatically disappeared into the land blessed by God only added to his image and acclaim. The Kuzari, completed a year or two before his pilgrimage, became a household text, absorbed by Jews everywhere as one of the greatest defenses of Judaism ever written. Few outside the scholarly community know him today, but you should, and you should definitely go check out the Kuzari. I'll post some links to his poetry on today's episode's webpage. Just go to jewidonow.com, scroll down to see a link for today's episode, click on that, and you'll be there. You can also explore every episode I've done by clicking on the podcast link at the top of the homepage. Again, scroll down and you'll see all the seasons listed there. Next time, we're sticking with medieval Spain. Come to think of it, also talking about a Jewish writer, doctor, and philosopher who also went on his own journey across North Africa to the Holy Land. Coming right after Judah Halevi, next week's sage is considered the greatest Jewish scholar who ever lived. Maimonides. As always, my email is jewoughtoknowpodcast at gmail.com and my website is jewoughtoknow.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you next time. Lahithra out. See you later.